Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was like, did I? My name is Lyndon. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Rights, and it's an honor to speak to you this morning. I want to say hello through the camera to the people in Nickel Hall. We love you, and we're glad that you're able to be a part of what God is doing here at Central Heights. Trust me, it was totally worth it. No question. Don't you agree? Thank you. What am I talking about? Well, if you were there, you know exactly what I was talking about. And if you weren't, well, sorry, you missed out. Totally worth it. You got FOMO yet? Well, rather than me trying to explain this to you, why don't you just take a look at this and that will explain what I'm talking about. Trust me, it was worth it. And we're going to do it again. And so next year, if you decide, well, I don't know if I should go or not, it's worth it. Please plan on it. We're going to do it again. But one of the highlights of the men's weekend that we had last weekend was that we got to get together in groups of eight or nine and we got to study the Bible together. We didn't have a speaker. We had leaders who led us in speaking by, by us all going and looking at the scriptures together. And we basically looked at... Three different scriptures under three different themes, and we asked the scriptures four questions. These four questions were simple, and this is just one way to do Bible study, and we thought it was a really powerful way to demonstrate how a three and four group could work. And uh, so the questions were, what do these verses say about God? What do these say about me? What do they say about what God has done through Jesus, and how can I respond? 
So I thought in keeping moving forward in our Real Faith series in James here, I thought, why don't we look at James chapter 1, 12 to 18 through the same set of four questions. So we're going to do that this morning. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic uh, devices, or if you want to look on the screen, James 1, 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, and per every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation, his creatures, rather. So what do these verses say about God? Well, first of all, God allows his people to be tested. One example that's very familiar to those of us who have grown up in the church would be Abraham. In Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, God was having a conversation, or Abraham was having a conversation with God about the covenant that he had made together that they had made. And it, God said, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. The problem is, Abraham had no sons, no heir. How's that possible? Old man. And he brought him outside, God said. God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Wow, okay, so God's going to provide this incredible opportunity for Abraham to have this large family, God's chosen people. But Genesis 22, just a few chapters later, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which, of which I shall tell you. Are you kidding me? Like, what about the promise? Don't you remember how long it took us to have that child? But then Hebrews 11 is Abraham's response. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But catch what Abraham was able to do. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, if that's not a test, I don't know how many of you have ever thought of, well, I'm going to take my son up and I'm going to go on a mountain and I'm going to, because God told me to. But that was a test. But even if we go back to a couple weeks ago when we had our sermon then on James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it's very clear. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's assumed. There will be testing. God allows his people to be tested. And in the midst of trials... God's words to us are in a two-word phrase. Trust me. But what else can we learn about God? God promises a crown of life to those who remain steadfast under trial. 
what does he mean by crown of life? Well, we've seen it, the, the laurel wreath that's given to a victorious athlete as a symbol of victory, power, achievement. Now, at our house, we don't really have any of those, but we were cleaning out our garage. I don't know about, do you guys have garages that are junk stations? We have one of those. My wife's graciously helping me. We're starting to slowly go through this. We have kids that have some of their stuff, junk stuff, at our house still. But we found this stuff in one of my uh, kids' drawers or boxes. Drama Program Award. Top Scholar. Math and Science Program Award. French Immersion Program Award. Humanities Program Award. Tegan, I probably shouldn't have brought these all up here. She teaches at W.J. Mowat, and you know what? The other day she said, you know what? Maybe I should just take these back and maybe they can recycle and put someone else's name on them. She got her mother's brains, not mine. Thank you. But those are in opposite to what it says in 1 Corinthians, 7, or 1 Corinthians 9. What's the crown of life? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Recyclable. But we, an imperishable. But what is it? Well, James 5, if you go a little further down, there's a little bit of a reference to it. Pardon me, James 2, verse 5. Listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. Now, the, the, the word for life in there is zoe. It's a Greek word. And it's the same word, and I'll read a number of different places where it's used. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Basically, the fullness of what God has intended for us when he created mankind. That is what he's offering. That is what he's restoring. I love Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And if you've ever been to a funeral that I've conducted, these verses most often are in there because they remind us of what the life is like. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's as it should be. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We often focus on this next part. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Yes! But just go back. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's life. That's what he offers us. Complete inclusion. Complete restored relationship. God says to us this morning, I want to offer you the crown of life. Trust me. It's worth it. 
What else can we learn about God? God tempts no one. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Pretty much a blunt assessment. Does God ever tempt anyone? Nope. Why would anybody even need to make such a claim? Why would say, someone say, well, God's tempting me? Well, commentator Dan McCartney explains it this way. In the context of a strong belief in God's sovereign disposition of everything, it's easy to slip into the pattern of blaming God for one's own failure. Adam did it. The woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Or even the request in Matthew 6, and lead us not into temptation, could be construed to suggest that God is the agent of temptation to evil. Although God is sovereign over the act of his creatures, and although God may permit temptation and even use it in the believer's life, God himself is not the one who tempts to evil, which would make God the author of sin. God tests by allowing and even ordaining external pressure, but he himself does not try to lure people into sinning. To do so would be contrary to his character. Now something that kind of tends to muddy the waters when we talk about this, is this, especially for those that people that, that read the Greek New Testament or understand the Greek, you see the word translated for trials in verse 12 and the word translated temptation in verse 13, it's actually the same word. Now, without getting bogged down too much here, the key to understanding that, because some people might say tests and trials or temptations are the same thing. But, again, McCartney, I'll just quote him to help us with that. There are some modern languages in which the word trials and temptations are, as in Greek, the same. And the native speakers of such languages have indicated to me that they have no difficulty differentiating or discerning the shift of meaning that occurs here because the context makes it clear which sense is intended in each case. So, for those of you who that's a concern, I just wanted to bring that up. But really what James is saying here is that God tests, but he never tempts. One more thing. What do we learn about God from this passage? God does not change. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's use another translation. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who shift, created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Or if you like the NIV, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Now there's a lot more we could pick up from this passage about what we can learn about God. But I want to remind you of these three things. God will always allow his people to be tested. So be prepared. He will always give the promised crown of life to those who remain steadfast under trial. And he will never tempt anyone. Because he doesn't change. So then let's go to the second question. What can we learn about me? Well, simply put, temptation starts with me. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Lured and enticed by my own desire. It's been that way from the very beginning. 
If you go back to the very story, beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Fill your boots. Have fun. Enjoy. Savor. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What's God saying there? I made you. I know how things work best. Let me be God. And you partner with me by working and keeping what I've created. In other words, God is saying, trust me on this one. It's worth it. Let's go a little further in the story of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Pardon me, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But... The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Like, come on, really? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Basically what Satan's saying is, trust me, it's worth it. Or if you want to take it further and maybe even more adequately, trust yourself, it's worth it. So then it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's desire, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what happened? Desire. It looks good. It must be worth it. You ever find yourself saying that? It looks good. It must be worth it. So she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What must that have been like? Something's not right here. What have I done? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That had never happened before. Why would they have to hide? But now fear comes. That's not what was promised. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. They were lured and enticed by their own desire. And that happens to us. I see it. I want it. It must be good. It's worth it. Now see, sometimes when we're teaching, it's good to bring in experts. And so I thought today it would be good to bring in a, do a little interview with my friend. Um, we'll call this friend Gary. And uh, he's an expert on lure and enticement. Just one second.
Hello, everyone. Say hello to Gary. Gary's just been chilling. So I thought today I would interview Gary because Gary's got a great story. So Gary, according to um, what, I'll just put him up there so you guys can see him. So apparently, from what I understand, from what you were telling me off stage, you were swimming around, minding your own business, maybe feeling a little bit hungry, and you saw this thing. Is that correct? Right. It caught your eye, looked pretty tasty, and seeing as though you hadn't eaten in a bit, you didn't want to miss out or let someone else get it before you did, so you decided to go in for a closer look. Is that accurate, Gary? Cat got your tongue. Okay, so the closer you got, the better it looked, and the better it looked, the more you wanted it. It wiggled a little here, it wiggled a little there, in just the right way, just begging you to have a nibble. Is that how it went, Gary? Why not? Desire. I'm going in. Full chomp mode. So Gary, I just have one question for you. Are you ready to answer at least one? Was it worth it? You see, Gary is kind of a humorous example, but the reality is when we are lured and enticed, at least according to this scripture, you have to ask the question, is it worth it? What does the scripture say? James is telling us that temptation is like that. That when we let our desires be the deciding factor, when we let our appetites and our feelings determine our decisions, and when we trust ourselves to decide what is good for us instead of what God says, we are vulnerable to deception. It leads to death. For my own journey of temptation, back before Noah's flood, when I was in Bible school, I did an assignment on temptation. And it's because, it's because a lot of us, probably all of us, especially us as men, we have a strong battle for the purity of our minds. So I thought, well, I need to figure this out. I need to ask the hard questions. I wanted to know why the struggle was so d difficult. And in one of the things I saw, I found something that I later discovered actually applies to pretty much all temptation and addictions. It's this. Often the lure and enticement of temptation is the strongest when I'm weak, when I'm tired, when I'm lonely, when I'm bored, when I'm frustrated, when I'm anxious, when I'm discouraged. I just need some comfort here. When I feel this way, I reason to myself, Lyndon, you owe yourself this little bit of pleasure. And that can be anything from McDonald's food which is my comfort go-to, unfortunately, to flat-out pornography, affairs. That's what guys, that might be the range for guys, might be different for ladies, might be the same. But it's this belief that somehow if I do this, it will make my life better. If I will, it will satisfy that ache inside me, at least for a little while. It will be worth it, at least temporarily. And honestly, folks, let's not pretend that sin isn't fun, okay? 
No one said sin and temptation wouldn't create a buzz. If it didn't, we wouldn't do it. But for how long? There's a buzz, there's a sense of anticipation, a comfort, but it doesn't last. Desire that lures us to seek comfort or satisfaction from anything temporary always comes up short. Worse yet, if it goes against how God designed us to live, it will bite us. If not immediately, it will eventually. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the exact opposite of what God has offered us in the crown of life. God has no desire whatsoever for any of us to experience death. He's saying, as your very loving, unchanging father, it's not worth it. So it reminds me of two things. There is nothing on this earth that is ever, was ever made to satisfy the longing that I have for a close, intimate, unashamed, conversational walk with God, my creator. There's nothing on this earth. So be prepared for disappointment if you try to let anything else take that spot. Believe me, I've tried. But secondly, part of our arsenal for resisting temptation is having a crystal clear picture of the consequences of the decision that we're making. Keep the consequences in front of us. In one of the offices, I mean, I've had so many different offices in this church. The one that I'm currently in a uh, pastor we used to have here named Ron Redekop had this picture on his wall. And those of you who know Jim and Tammy Baker, I apologize if you're big Jim and Dam Tammy fans, but they were televangelists back in the 80s, 90s. Big hair, beautiful makeup, you know. And that was Jim. No. <laughs> so Ron had this picture on the wall of Jim and Tammy Baker, and on the top it says, Lest I be tempted. I'm like, Ron, what in the world is that about? He says, you know what? All I have to do is look at that picture and realize the consequences of what would happen if I ever had an affair. Because that's part of their journey. And another prof who used to write out a list, he would travel a lot, so there's all kinds of opportunity for, for failure and temptation. And he had a list of all the things that God had blessed him with. And then on that same list, he would sort of look, check off all the things he would lose if he ever chose to have an affair on his wife. Being aware of our consequences is a huge part. It's part of the arsenal God has given us. It's part of the way out that's talked about in 1 Corinthians. When temptation comes. So I want to take the last two questions together. What do these verses say about what God has done through Jesus and how can I respond? James 1, 16 to 18 says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. That's the key. Deception is the enemy's tool. And we deceive ourselves. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God, pardon me, the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation, his creatures. So go back to the Garden of Eden for a second. Satan's approach was to get you to question God's goodness and his intentions for us. 
And that's what our desires can do too. And the enemy will work partner with our desires to do this, to ask this question. Can God be trusted? God is hiding something from you. If you don't dip your toe into that, whatever it is, you're going to miss out. God knows that if you can just get out from under his authority and restriction, your life will be better. You can be the master of your own destiny. But go back to James 1. It says, every good and every perfect gift is from above. Everything God has for us is good and perfect, even though we don't understand it at the time. See, our picture of God affects our view of temptation. The creator, the author of life, the giver of every good and perfect gift is the only one the only one qualified to be the master of our destiny. The rest of us, it's above our pay grade. We were never meant to be in charge of our lives. He's the only one with the bigger picture and the only one who can be trusted on how life was best meant and designed to be lived. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. That is what he wants for us. That is what he chose for us. If you look at verse 18, of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. Or if you like the NLT, he chose to give, us, to give birth to us by giving us his true word. Or verse 18 in NIV, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God is not holding us back from our desires like a parent who brings out the best snacks after the kids go to bed. How many of you do that? Yeah, Ryan, yeah, thank you for being honest. That's authenticity. That's not God. We have this picture that God has something else out there, but, you know. No, he chose us instead to be the recipients of every good and perfect gift. He chose to give us the crown of life. Instead of pressing reset, delete, sin has come, I'm going to throw this out, he said, no, I'm going to do whatever it takes to give every good and perfect gift to these people that I love and I created. Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God, but God, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For it is while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That kind of love from an unchanging father determines our worth and it determines our identity. And it's that kind of love that teaches us to trust him, to surrender to him, and to face temptation, to face the desires that we have, to acknowledge and recognize that what they offer is not really what happens. It helps us to identify and resist those desires, not just because they lead to death, because they are deceitful in what they promise, and because what God is offering is so much better. 
I want to quote Dan McCartney one more time, the commentator. And I'm doing this more as a statement to God. So I've changed his words slightly. It says, Father, it is precisely the knowledge of your character, both what you are not and what you are, and the knowledge that I am your offspring by the word of your truth, it is that that protects me against the deceitfulness of sin. Small picture of God, big temptation. Big picture of God and his love and his knowing what's best and knowing us and receiving us in spite of ourselves. Smaller battle with desire. Yes, it will be there. But when we know who it is that we follow, we know that this really doesn't have as much lure to it because we know it's cheap and it's useless. So I want to get practical really quick here. And I want to just give us four, four things that we can hang on to. Number one, what do I do? Know who you are. When desire comes knocking at the door, which it will do for all of us, I need to be able to know that I am a chosen first fruits. I am a prized possession of the creator of the universe. That I don't have to be anything else. I can act in accordance with that. But then also I need to know whose I am. That I belong to the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so when I go to him to be able to get the things that really satisfy, that is when I can resist temptation. But thirdly, and this is important, we need to know and acknowledge our favorite lures. You guys, not everybody is tempted by a Big Mac. Not everyone is tempted by money. If I'm honest, most of us as men we struggle because we're tempted with the eyes and lust. But guess what? If we know those things, we need to understand that those are lures and we need to be able to not go through three or four different warning signs, but rather create scenarios where we step away. And, and honestly, folks, if that means that I have to take my cell phone and I need to take a hammer to it, and I need to get a flip phone, then do it. Or if I need to put my wallet somewhere where I can't drive by a McDonald's when I go to the gym, I have to drive by it. But this last one, because honestly, there's, I could list a thousand different temptations and I wouldn't hit them all. This last one, don't swim alone. This is one of the beautiful things about our men's weekend. Because at our men's weekend, we realized again that we need each other. And that we were never designed to face temptation or anything else as an individual alone. So whatever it takes, do it in a group. You would never send your child out to swim by themselves. So why do we do that? Because we're probably afraid if people really knew what went on in my mind that they might judge me. And folks, it's time for us to stop doing that too. 
and instead come around each other and say, okay, we struggle? Yes. Are we going to have victory? Yes. We're going to phone each other when we're struggling with temptation. We're going to get a wingman or two or a wing lady or two. Because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift and he says, I want you to trust me. Because what I have to offer you is worth it. Now, the fact that he's chosen us, we celebrate that together. And we want to celebrate that by celebrating communion. And celebration of communion is in that, indeed, is that word, celebration. It's an opportunity for us to acknowledge that God has chosen us. And in the process of choosing us, he has then said, I am redeeming. I am giving you a new life. I am giving you the crown of life. And so today, we partake in communion for that purpose. So I, I can see that our, our um, servers have gone out. And they're going to come and serve us. But what I want to just invite you to do is just take a couple minutes as they're serving. Just to think through. Lord, is there anything that I just need to kind of make right with you? Not for condemnation's sake, but for freedom's sake. And then as you come, you look at the elements and you'll be able to say, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the body and the blood of Jesus, I can receive that forgiveness.